we thank you so much that the ground is level here. That all of us have been equally dead in our sin and equally raised to life because of Jesus. I pray that as we continue to worship together, uh, that you'd be glorified in the ways that we fellowship, in the ways that we submit to the word as it's taught, in the ways that we pray for one another. I thank you for the ways that already uh, we have fellowshiped and worshiped uh, through song. And I pray that these things that we have sung would ring long in our ears, uh, would help resonate with the text as it's taught, and would even sink so deeply into us that we would really live like these things are true. Thank you for loving us and for making that love so clear to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his life and in his teaching, in his death, and in his resurrection. And we lift him up. And it's in his name that we pray and know that you hear us. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Oh, a few of you are awake this morning. Good morning. Um, my name is Keisha Colbreth, and I'm on staff at Grace Community Church as the children's ministry director here. And this is my husband, Scott. Um, he's one of our elders. And we just want to welcome you today to Grace. Uh, for those of you that may be visiting with us for the first time, we want to extend a special welcome to you. And uh, most of you should have received a, a bulletin as you came in. And I just want to invite our guests especially um, to help us get connected with you. So there's a place in the bulletin that you can do that with this connection card. You can give us your uh, name and information. Let us know your demographic. And also just it helps us know how we can best minister to you and how we can get you connected with information here at the church. So please feel free to fill this out and put it in the offering plate when it comes around. Uh, On the back for our guests and for our regular uh, family folks here at Grace, um, there's a place for you to fill out a prayer request. And we would love for you to put your name with that too, if you don't mind, just so we can put a face with the name there and a message. But um, we pray for those weekly at our staff meetings um, each week. And so we would love to lift those up for you and be praying for your needs. So today I just wanted to open our prayer time by saying happy Valentine's Day. For those of you that are not so keen on Valentine's Day, it is obviously a very man-made holiday, uh, probably very more American man-made holiday, but um, at least the extravagance of it anyway. Um, But I want to encourage you today by reminding you that you are actually the most loved Valentine on the planet today. And every one of us can have that standing because it has nothing to do with if you're in a relationship with another person, if you have children to celebrate Valentine's Day with, if you have a spouse, if you don't. It has to do with being loved by God because we love because he first loved us. And so I just wanted to share that this morning. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. So I just want to encourage you this morning that it's quite a blessing to to love you and to be loved by you in this church family, and just to remember that though our love is wonderful, that we can love others, we can only do that because God poured out his love on us through Christ. So remember that beautiful Valentine today, that you are greatly loved by your Savior. So, last Sunday did not end up being the greatest sports day of my 62 years of life. (laughs) My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. Uh, I have recovered somewhat from last uh, week. Thankfully, my hope is not in sports, huh? It's in the Lord. If you are here, as Keisha said, for the first time, we really, we welcome you. We, we welcome everybody else. We really welcome you. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. We're glad you are here. Glad that you decided to worship the Lord with us today. 
Well, for 20 years, I, I lived in a spectacularly beautiful place. The North Carolina mountains. I used to love to say, or I used to say, I love the mountains on a day like today. Uh, after a while, it dawned on me that I said that regardless of what kind of day it was. A sunny day, I love the mountains. Or a rainy day, or a snowy day. or the, It didn't matter what season. In the winter, you could see through the trees. You could see more of the mountains. It's beautiful in the summer. I just love the mountains. But I particularly loved living in the mountains on days when the clouds would just descend all the way down to the ground. And it was just, you were in a fog. You couldn't see anything. I guess it was the mystery of what lay just behind what you couldn't see that was so uh, romantic, so appealing to me. I, I think the worst fog I have ever been in has been on Beach Mountain, top of Beach Mountain, which is where my daughter and her family now live. I've questioned their sanity about that. No, I'm just kidding. I would have to question Jim and Susan Boyd, who have a home about within shouting distance of uh, Ben and Liz. Uh, we used to take, and that's literally true, they can shout to each other. Uh, we, we used to take groups from TVR up to beach for skiing. And, and, but when the fog rolled in, I'm not kidding. You could not see five to ten feet beyond where your lights would shine. You'd have to have them on dim lights, you know, because you know what bright lights do in a fog. And you just hope that if somebody were stopped in front of you, that you could see the red through the fog soon enough to stop. I mean, truly, you would have to travel slow on such nights. The road going to the top of Beach Mountain, I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but I mean, it's, it feels like it's just straight up right into the clouds. Lance Armstrong trained there after he came back for his cancer, so you know that it's steep. But if you had never been to Beach Mountain before and you traveled up in a fog that thick, one night, and then you spent the night on top of beach, and the and 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 you're in the winter. Let's say you're in the winter because the, the the fog just freezes on the trees. You wake up the next morning, and you will see uh, two spectacular sights. First, the view alone is beautiful. Look, I, I know that it's not the Rockies, it's it's not the Alps, but it's it's fine enough for me. Second. If you've never seen hoarfrost or ice fog, as we say in the mountains, it'll take your breath away the first time you see it. It's, you got a little taste of it a couple of weeks ago on the way to church when the ice was on all the trees. I don't think I've ever seen it as beautiful here. I mean, when you're in the mountains, you see that on a fairly consistent basis, especially when you get over towards Banner Elk, Grandfather Mountain, that area. It is beautiful after uh, the fog has frozen on the trees, and you know uh, that on a brilliant cloud-free day, you are blessed to be in that place. So as we enter this seventh chapter of Hebrews, it may feel to you like we're in a thick fog or like you're in a thick fog. It's really frustrating if you feel like you're in a thick fog, but the person next to you say, mm-hmm, that's right, mm-hmm, I heard that, that's, I got that. I mean, look, remember as we said earlier, the fog clears behind you. So next week, we're in seven, Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 this morning. Next week when we get to chapter, verse 11 and move on, you'll still feel like you're in a fog, but this other will have cleared up. Behind you, and if you will hang in there, you're going to be rewarded. Uh, maybe one of the reasons that we have so much trouble with Hebrews is because we're so used to reading the New Testament, giving very little thought to the Old Testament. And it's look, we, we, we acknowledge that it's unwise to read any of the New Testament and not even think about the Old Testament. Hebrews just won't let you do that. You absolutely cannot ignore the Old Testament. If we're going to make sense of Hebrews at all, we have to know or at least be willing to learn how the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus all along. So here's the great thing about Hebrews. When we get to the top of the mountain and have a good night's rest, 
the beauty that awaits us in the light of a new day will be the worth the trip and worth the uncertainty that we experienced on the way up the mountain. Look, probably your experience with Hebrews in the past consists of Hebrews 11 or Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. That's pretty much your experience with Hebrews. A little bit here or there. Maybe you've heard a verse here or there. But when we get to chapter 11, it is going to make so much more sense than it ever made before. And we are going to watch the clouds clear. And the depth of of beauty that unfolds before us will be something that not everyone is blessed to see. So hang in there. Our text today is Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. But for the sake of context, we're going to go back and read verses 19 and 20 from chapter 6. And we're going to be reminded that all of the talk about Melchizedek is really pointing to Jesus. Hebrews 5, where the author starts in Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, he's going to pick back up at the end of 6 and end of 7. All that in between was a parenthesis. It was kind of a by-the-way moment, if you will. He was talking about things that related to the bigger picture, but he, he, he took a sort, of a sort of a side trip while he's getting back into the main section now. So we're going to be reading Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 7, 10. So if you would, please stand, as is our custom, <coughs> for the reading of Scripture. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. This king of Salem, do you know where Salem is? It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Before it was Jerusalem. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is... King of peace. He is without father or mother (coughs) or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office through, who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also were descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Father, we acknowledge that this is rather complex at first blush, at first reading. And we know that there is truth that we should be aware of. We recognize not only is there truth that we need to know, but this makes a difference in our lives. And so we pray as we read about Jesus being pictured through this man Melchizedek. That you would open the eyes of our understanding. And that you might give us what you have desired for us to have on this day. May we not miss it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated. 
Okay, I'm going to just randomly pick a few people to come up and explain what this meant. And so we'll see. Uh, it, it feels kind of like that overwhelming. Really, when you slow down, though, uh, you'll, you'll see that it's, it, it, it makes a lot more sense. And then when all of it's put together, it does. It makes perfect sense. Have you noticed in this study of Hebrews that there has not been a single sermon that did not refer extensively to the Old Testament. I mean, he starts off saying, in, in the olden days, in, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. And in many different ways, God spoke to us. And now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Uh, whether we spend a lot of time reviewing those Old Testament texts or not, it's been there every single time. It's evident that the author expected his readers... To know all about what he was saying when he referred to the Old Testament. Now, they were Jewish. Most of them were Jewish. If not, all of them were Jewish. And so consequently, they would understand. But it's true today that, that most believers are not Jewish. And we didn't grow up immersed in the Old Testament stories. We tend to think... The Old Testament scriptures belong to the Jews. The New Testament scriptures belong to Christians. That is not so. It's all our scriptures. And and, and the Old and New Testament belong both to the Jews and to the Gentiles who will trust Christ. A lot of Jews don't. They say, no, no, no. It stopped at the end of the Old Testament. But even though we didn't grow up being immersed in those stories... God expects us to be familiar with the gospel origin in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament truth of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection that are so precious to us. Today's text recalls Genesis 14, which tells the story of Lot being taken captive by kings from the north. Uh, That was after Lot had moved away from Abraham over to Sodom. Uh, When Abraham heard about Lot's capture, he gathered his men, they got on their horses, they drove drove through the night, and they they caught up with uh, Lot and, 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 and the people who had captured him and freed Lot and turned to go back home. And on his way back home, he passed east of Jerusalem, and Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham and his men with bread and wine. One of the great things about reading through the Bible year after year is that you begin to see patterns that are over and over in Scripture. Does that remind you of anything? Bread and wine? The priest of God brought to Abraham bread and wine. Does it remind you of of the Lord's table? When we come to the Lord's table and there's bread and wine? It's one of the problems that I have with the paleo diet, even though I, I, I used it some time ago. Not recently, as is very evident. Um, but some time ago. But the philosophy of it. Well, caveman ate right, and then finally we discovered bread, and that really messed everything. Look, bread is, is just a huge part of Scripture. So, honey, pick up some yeast rolls on the way home, all right? It's a, let's... Um, See how I did that really subtly there. You know what one of the great things about seeing these patterns in Scripture is that it increases your confidence and trust in the one who loved you enough to send his son to die in your place. You start to see patterns in your life. And I've been down this road before and I thought it was going to be awful, but God did a beautiful thing. In verse 3 of Hebrews 7, we're told that Melchizedek is without father or mother. He is without genealogy. Now, a careful reading of Genesis is going to tell you that that is absolutely, utterly, entirely, and all the other redundant things I can say, unique. It's unique. It just doesn't happen. In Genesis, genealogies are all the way through Scripture, but particularly in Genesis. You've got the genealogies of of, um, not only Isaac but Ishmael, but for the most part, genealogies in Scripture are, are pointing to the line 
that leads all the way to, to Jesus. From Adam all the way to Jesus. And all of the genealogies don't carry all of the names of the people. But the, the, the fact is, is that God is faithful to protect the line through which the Messiah would come. Even though Satan fights against it and does everything he can to destroy it. How much did Satan know? I don't know. But over and over and over it looks like it's not going to happen. If the Messiah is coming through this line, I think we've got a problem here. And God steps in and it's not a problem. He takes care of it. So, Melchizedek had no family. That doesn't mean that he didn't have a father and mother. That he didn't have a a record of, of his genealogy. But it's not listed. And that's significant. The fact that their names are not given serves to indicate... Uh, a man who comes out of nowhere. As far as the Jews were concerned, wait a minute. We we know about all of the the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But who is this Melchizedek? Does he really have status? Does he have standing? Well, absolutely he does. David gives expression in Psalm 110, which we'll talk about Next week, as far as we know, though, as far as we know, this man had no beginning of days nor end of life. You may have never picked up on that as you read through Genesis, but the Jewish Christians to whom Hebrews was was written were thinking about Melchizedek long before they trusted Christ. They're like, Melchizedek, I don't really understand them. David mentions him later. But what's the big deal? Well, the author of Hebrews is beginning to connect the dots for them. Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Some people think, think, oh, Melchizedek was um, uh, a picture of Christ. It was actually Jesus in the flesh. This was Jesus. No, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, continuing as a priest forever. Because, again, we don't know anything about his life, birth, birth, life, or death. Melchizedek was born and died just like everyone else. But the way Scripture characterizes the sudden appearance of this king of righteousness and king of peace points to Jesus. Jesus, Melchizedek was the type. Jesus was the anti-type. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Abraham lived 400 years plus before the law was given to Moses. Yet, he knew to tithe to God's priest. Abraham gave a tenth of all the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Who in turn blessed Abraham. Even though, Hebrews points out, Abraham was the one To whom the blessings of God had been given. God had said to Abraham. All who bless you I will bless. All who curse you I will curse. Abraham was the man on the scene. In fact when we went through Genesis two three years ago. My estimation of Abraham rose through the roof. Even though he messed up royally. On more than one occasion. And he was back and he wavered in his faith. He is mentioned in the New Testament as a man of absolute faith. But he wavered a little bit. He had struggles with it. And he lived a life just like you and I lived. And he had been given though the promises of God. I will make a great nation out of you. Even so, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. You would think it would be the other way around. <clears throat> Verses 7 through 10 constitute a rather sophisticated argument for the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood is more superior than the Levitical priesthood or the Levites like the ones that Moses and Aaron came from and all the priests down through the ages. Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to The Levitical priesthood. Which in turn will point to the superiority of Jesus over any living priest. Any earthly priest. Many people think that Jesus' superiority 
uh, as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek is the central theme of the book of Hebrews. That's why it's such a big deal that we spend time to figure it out. I think it's safe to acknowledge that Hebrews is, is a sophisticated apologetic that Jesus is the center of all of God's plans in the universe. Jesus is the center of everything. The establishment of Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek is included to show how Jesus can be prophet, priest, and king all at the same time. Even though priests and kings in Israel came from two different lines, two different tribes. The details will be addressed next week. Even though kings come from the line of Judah, priests come from the line of Levi, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek so he can be all. And the author goes so far as to say in our text today that you can make the claim that Levi, even though he was unborn, unborn, paid tithes to Melchizedek through his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham. It's a sophisticated argument indeed. There's a lot to process in Hebrews 7. And you may think at this point that there's little application for your life. All contraire. I have good news. There's a great deal of application in our text. And I'm going to offer what I see in this text by the way of offering biblical principles that are found here, even if uh, they are at the very least implied, yet even if they are not explicitly stated. So you may want to write these down for review, or you may just want to gear up. I'm going to talk about this in, in home group this week. I want to think about it. Principle number one is this. When engaging scripture, God expects us to use our minds as well as our hearts. Do you think there is any way in creation, if we were not going through the book of Hebrews, that I would have chosen this text to preach on? I mean, absolutely. There is no way. I would have said, you know, it would be really cool. And I'd get to study and I'd say, you know, there's another really cool text over there in Philippians. I think I'll preach that. I would never do. And yet, this argument, this book of Hebrews, is a fascinating description of how God does things in the universe. It it tells us exactly how it happens. Now, when I say this, that God expects us to use our minds as well as our hearts, make no mistake, God wants to change you at the very core of your being, in your heart. But to think that your relationship with God is is strictly experiential, where he speaks privately to you in ways that he speaks to no one else, is not only misguided, it's dangerous. Does a believer have a personal relationship with God through Jesus? Absolutely. Do we have a private relationship where we can say, God told me this is exactly how this is going to happen or this is how it's supposed to be or God is going to say, God tells me things that he hasn't told anybody else like one popular speaker whose name, I won't mention her name, but who says, God told me things that he didn't even tell the apostles. That's dangerous, isn't it? We don't have a private relationship. What God says to one person, he says to all. And you know what happens when we, we're unwilling to study Scripture at the levels that it calls us to study it? Then we, we, we begin to just fall back on, well, I think the Holy Spirit wants me to do this. I think the Holy Spirit. There is a whole lot that the Holy Spirit absolutely tells you what's supposed to be done with your life. As is often said here, and as recently as last week, I'm pretty sure on Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, meaning that you can't separate the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Scripture ultimately means nothing to those who don't have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is never going to lead a believer to do something that is not affirmed by Scripture. If, if, if the Holy Spirit tells you to go witness to your neighbor, he told you that before you felt that. It's, it's not, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't lead us. Sometimes you just have a very strong impression that you're to do this or you're to do that. But more often than not, it's just 
confirming what has already been said in the word. Thus, it is important to study scripture. Asking God to enlighten our minds as well as our hearts. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 1 is that God would enlighten the hearts of his readers so that they would know the hope to which they are called. That same hope that the author of Hebrews references repeatedly in his sophisticated sermon to persecuted believers. Listen, this, the Hebrews is written to a bunch of people that could be arrested at any moment. And I'm sure they were thinking, I don't have time for this. I've got to worry about what's going to happen to my children if, if, if I'm taken away and thrown to the lions. How do you expect me? Sermons here at, at Grace are designed to accomplish three things. One, explain the meaning of the text. What does it mean? Two, make personal application. And three, provide tools for Bible study. Oftentimes, the text does not mean exactly what you think it means. And I don't say that arrogantly at all. In fact, in fact, oftentimes, the text does not say what I think it means when I'm ready to start studying. I mean, I used to, we used to print the title of the sermon in the bulletin. Becky Brissom was our, our secretary at the time. And she would, be, I'd say, hey, Becky, stop the press. I've got I've to change the title of the sermon. It doesn't mean what I thought it meant now that I've studied it. Look, um, w- when I get into study preparing to preach the text, I learn more than I am possibly able to communicate. And don't be discouraged and, and, find, and say, because you, you'll find yourself sometimes saying, wow, I should have known that already. Now, you're probably not going to let everybody know that you should have known that already. You're just, oh, of course, of course I knew that. But you may think, I should have known that already. Believe me, I uh, realize oftentimes that I should have known this already. But I, I recognize that the Lord has provided teachers for the church. And I and the others who preach here at Grace are grateful. We're blessed to pass on to you what other teachers have taught us. I can't study at the level... That these guys who know the Greek upside down, inside out, Hebrew, all of the culture. But they provide it for me in ways that I'm able to then hopefully be able to pass on to you. But one thing is we all are responsible to absorb what we're told, what we're, what we're given. And then learn and then move on. In, in addition to understanding what the text means though, the question that needs to be asked and answered every time is how does this apply to me? What is... What is God saying to me? I hear people say, look, in every experience, God's trying to teach you something. I can promise you, whatever he's trying to teach you is already here. It's in the word already. But here's that, so you don't have to find exactly some, what is it exactly God wants me to know from this? He may be saying something very specific, but again, it's going to come from Scripture. But it's always appropriate to ask, how does this scripture, what does this mean for me? How am I to live my life based on the truth that has been given to me? Scripture is timeless and therefore, look, we we talk about the fact that what scripture, when you say, this is what the Bible means to me. Well, it really doesn't matter what the Bible means to you until first we understand what the Bible means. What does this text mean? Then I can say what it means to me. But at the same time, don't get the sense that just because it was written in a particular context that it doesn't speak to me in my day. It absolutely does. Scripture is timeless. Even though the Hebrews' context was different, the the readers of, of Hebrews was different than mine. Their context was different from mine. It speaks every bit as much to me as it did to them. I just have to understand how God is doing this, what he's saying and how he he is applying this to my life. And remember from a few weeks ago, none of this happens overnight. Our understanding of scripture, ways that we are to apply it, it, we, we don't figure this out overnight. And even if you have no idea what I'm talking about this morning, if you'll hang in for a few months, I imagine you're going to learn more about Hebrews than you ever dreamed that you would know. 
What's really exciting is that we're gonna we're getting ready uh, to 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 enter into some some wonderful truth in Hebrews. We're getting close to the really good stuff. For the moment, let's stay technical on this second point, which is speaking of using our minds. What's up with type and anti-type? You may have never even heard anti-type. So and so is a type of Christ, and this is the fulfillment. Well, that's anti-type is just another way of saying fulfillment. Um, Melchizedek was the type. Jesus was the anti-type or the fulfillment of the prophesied type of Christ. Remember, we're told in verse 3 that Melchizedek resembled the Son of God. Now, think about this for just a moment. And think about when you get this fully, it really makes a difference in how you understand Scripture. It is not that Jesus resembled Melchizedek. Melchizedek resembled Jesus. The antitype defines the type, not the other way around. Jesus was already in God's mind, in God's plan. He was everything. And then there were pictures along the way that pointed to him. That reminds us that there is only one hero in the Bible. And it's not Daniel. And it's not Joseph. It's Jesus. Daniel is like Jesus. It's not that Jesus is like Daniel. Third. God's design is far more intricate and beautiful than we can possibly conceive. In Genesis 14, why was Lot in Sodom instead of the promised land? Lot was captured. Because he was in Sodom. Why was he there? Look, why was Abraham, who had grown up in Ur of the Chaldees, even in, the, in Canaan? Why did Melchizedek go out to meet Abraham as he was passing by Jerusalem? Who was this priest out of nowhere that just showed up? Everything pointed to Jesus. And this was plan A before the world ever began. Jesus was not a backup plan in case the law didn't work out. So, you can't say, look, I did my best. I couldn't do it well enough. I'm going to trust Jesus as my Savior. And then say, but now it's up to me. Jesus made the down payment. I've got to keep up the monthly installments. Look, Jesus paid it all. Jesus was plan A from the beginning. Not just from the, not from the fall. Jesus was plan A from before the world ever began. Maybe one of the most intriguing aspects of this whole scenario is the breakup between Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot's, uh, their shepherds were starting to fight with each other because there were too many sheep and not enough land, not enough grass. And so Abraham says, look, Lot, we have to split up. And in the culture of the day, Lot should have said, Abraham said, we have to split up. Choose where you want to go. You go one way, I'll go the other. In the culture of the day, the way this was supposed to take place was Lot would then say, no, Abraham, you choose. And Abraham would say, no, Lot, you choose. Abraham, it would not be right for me to choose. Okay, I'll choose. Abraham would have ultimately made the choice. That's not what happened. Abraham said, choose, Lot. And he said, okay, I'll take that really fertile land in the plain." That's good over there, so I'll take that. So let me ask you, what in your life has gone so much the wrong way that you absolutely cannot make sense of God's design? You you can't even come close to describing the place where you are, whether it's geographical or relational or emotional. Well, here's good news, and this is what Melchizedek teaches us, this whole thing. You are living out God's intricate and beautiful design. God's plan is always best, whether you feel like it or not, no matter what. You ever found yourself in a place in life where you said, how did I even get here? I did not want to be here. 
And then later you realize it was all part of God's good and beautiful plan. We'll never see that more clearly. Look, the sin that you're struggling with, the questions that you have about God's goodness. You know when all of that's going to be resolved? When you stand face to face with Jesus. But we can get a taste of it now by faith. Trust God no matter what. When we stand before Jesus, we will know even as we're known. We will know then what we should remember now. Our blessings come from God. The author of Hebrews makes the clear case that the superior is greater, is the one who blesses the inferior. Although there are exceptions to that in Scripture, the readers would not have argued with this principle at all. When, when, when the writer says, look, it's the, it's the superior who blesses the inferior. So that's a big deal about Melchizedek blessing Abraham, even though Abraham was the one sitting on all those promises. From God. Even though Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And the one to whom God's promises had come. Melchizedek who resembled the son of God. Blessed Abraham. All. All of our blessings come from God. And anytime we bless others. We're just a conduit for God's blessings. Therefore. God deserves. Our best. A tithe was required in the law. It was required in the law. And that's what he's making a big deal about. The Levitical priests were required to receive a tithe from the people. Now as far as I can tell. A specific tithe is not required of us. In these days in which we live under the new covenant. Interestingly. Abraham was not required By law to give a tithe. But he did. The Greek in verse 4. Is more descriptive than our English. Translations are. When when it was told that Abraham gave a tenth. Off the top. Of the spoils. Abraham gave a tenth. Off the top. That's a good word for us. Abraham gave his best. Don't wait. Do not wait. Until you have paid all your bills to see how much you have left over to give to the Lord. A tenth, even though it's not required of us. It wasn't required of Abraham, but he gave how much? A tenth. It's a standard. It's a pattern. Even though it's not stated, it's a pattern. Net or gross? Gross. I'm speaking especially to those who are under 25 because the longer you wait, the more difficult it becomes to make given a part of your life. And that, of course, is a plug to those over 25 as well. Hope it makes you mad. And say, Whoa. <sighs> really? Does it, is that what it takes for somebody to shame you into giving? With what God has done for us? It ought to be natural for believers. But often it just doesn't seem to be. You know why? Because somehow we think this life is about us. But this life isn't about us. It's about Jesus. Now here's the good news. Jesus is all about us. God is all about us. And it's just like you found... In those early days of love and in those continued days of love, the more you give, the more you receive. And when you protect and you, then you lose something. When you give to the Lord, He gives back to you. If God is the author of all of our blessings, we ought to consider it a privilege to give to Him off the top. And as we give from the heart, always remember this. Every role in God's story is important, though it may not be the role you would choose. It's kind of like point number three. We tend to acknowledge God's design as wise after we see beauty come from ashes. But you know what? Some of us only get to see the ashes in this life. 
I wonder if that means that person's beauty is even more in heaven than most. I don't know. I think perspective-wise, look, we're all blessed. We're all as happy as we can possibly be. But perhaps the capacity is greater for those who suffer more in this life to appreciate the glory that we share in Jesus Christ throughout eternity. Do you know why we're here praising Jesus today? Because some of the people who first heard this sermon believed Christ in spite of all of the persecution, in spite of the dwindling numbers in their church. And they died for their faith. They died for for, for Jesus Christ. Tertullian said, that second and third century theologian, said the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more that Rome tried to stamp out Christianity, and the more they threw Christians to the lions and crucified them and burnt them on stakes saying, Light of the world! That's what you are. Light of the world. The more those who witnessed the faithfulness of the martyrs turned to Jesus. And that's why we're here today. What if everybody had said, it's just not worth it. Let's walk away. You may wonder why it is that you have to struggle with cancer. Why your parents had to split up. Why your spouse walked out on you. Why vicious and untrue rumors at work or in the neighborhood found fertile soil and took root. And now people believe lies about you. Well, at least you hope they're lies. I hope this is not true. Is there truth? We don't like being a piece in the puzzle. I mean, we want to be the one putting the puzzle together. We even want to determine the image of the puzzle. And in fact, in our day and age, you are the captain of your own ship. The captain of your own fate. But God is the maker, designer, worker of the puzzle. And our place has been designed by him. And our piece of the puzzle is exactly what it should be in the big picture. And even if you don't like your place one day, you're going to be proud to have had your place in the puzzle. Your job is not to complain about where you are. But to trust the one who is both sovereign and good. And in the end we're back where we started. The big deal about Melchizedek. is Jesus. To continue the puzzle analogy. The image is Jesus. You may have never thought about Melchizedek much. And now that you know more about him. It is not that he is such a big deal. But that Jesus is such a big deal. In saying that, it's great to remember once again that Melchizedek, just like you, is the object of God's great affection. Just as Keisha reminded us at the very beginning of prayer time. You are deeply loved. You are the greatest Valentine ever. Because God loves you in Jesus. And if you have acknowledged your sin... Before him and you have trusted that what Jesus did on the cross was payment for your sin. And we're going to get into detail about what that means in the coming weeks. Then you belong to him. And his affection is focused squarely on you. Oh that we might have the understanding and the trust. To believe that God is doing a wonderful thing in conforming us to the image of his son. Let's pray. Well, Lord, uh, what, what a great metaphor for our walk with you. When we're confronted with this man, Melchizedek, this high priest, Melchizedek, we... We don't know that much about him. And yet, you make a big deal about his role, his place in the puzzle. 
And there's so much that we don't understand. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to understand, first of all, why it's important that we know about. And then secondly, what a difference that makes in our lives as we follow Jesus. We pray that we will indeed point others to Christ. We pray that you would help us to be content, to be trusting to know that you do all things well and believe it and proclaim it not just with our words but with our actions with our lives Lord I fail at this so deeply and you know the challenges of my own heart my own life in allowing you to be God and putting me where you will Lord, give me a heart of trust. And even as I pray, let me be like Jesus. I I know that that means let me die. Let me be crucified with Christ because then I will discover that nevertheless I live. And it's not me, it's not I. The life that I now live in this flesh, in this body. I live by the faith and the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus, be exalted in our hearts and minds. Amen. On this special day, as we show love to those around us, may we remember the ultimate love that was shown to us by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. From Ephesians 6 verses 23 and 24. Peace be with you, dear brothers and sisters, and may God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you love with faithfulness. May God's grace eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.